All right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a difficult passage for me to speak on. Um, we're at verses 13 through 25, and I just want to be transparent with you. Uh, what makes this passage a little difficult for me to speak on is because it conjures up a little bit of history that is not so delightful uh, in our background as a nation. And... Uh, it collides with some of the things, and this is one of, the, one, of the, one of the accountability points when you do exposition. If I just did purely topical preaching, I would never preach on this text. Uh, but yet, we have to preach the whole counsel of God. It's in the Bible, and it's next. And so, you can't take a little bit of a, a detour or a bypass around it. You have to deal with it. And the other thing I would say by framing this passage and what we're going to talk about today is that it is interesting to me. Now, I planned this out uh, months before we got here, but it's interesting to me the timing of this text with what's going on in our culture. Um, you know, the, the sort of like the pushback and demonstrations and protests with the NFL players, what took place in Charlottesville and all of the other things. Uh, just begs the question is, how do Christians respond to these things? How do we respond to these things? And I want to say this too. Um, I say this a lot here at the church, but I, 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 want, to, I want to keep driving this until, until I sense that we get it. The Bible was never meant to be a point of reference. The Bible was meant to be the context by and through which we live our lives and we view all of issues in life. Do you understand the distinction? You don't go back to the Bible to get what you want when you're in need. No, Christians live within the context of the Bible. It is the framework by and through which we do our life. Every decision, every social decision, every justice issue, every, every issue in life, uh, every relational issue, Every parenting issue is informed by the context of the Bible. And so we don't move from our news sources or to, from our preferences or from our background to the issue and then engage the Scripture to endorse our own personal conclusions. We live within the text of the Scripture, and that informs us even when the passages are terribly uncomfortable. And you've got to make that choice and decision. Now, with that framework, let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness, and we thank you, God, for your word. Your word is good for us. Just like eating broccoli, we don't like it sometimes, but it's good for us. And so, Father, I pray in the name of your Son that you will speak to us, that you'll help us, and that you'll take us to where we need to be. God, we want to be the people of God down here. Uh, life is too short for us to be conflicted and ambivalent and duplicitous and binary, trying to make up our minds whether or not we're gonna, we want to reflect the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that we will be Jesus' people. 
and that will represent you. Help us to think right about the pilgrimage in Jesus' name. Amen. These are exiles that Peter is writing to, folks who have been extracted from Jerusalem because of persecution. Um, they've been scattered about throughout the Roman Empire, uh, taken away from the booming revival that was taking place there in Jerusalem, and boy, was it glorious. Now they're scattered throughout these five provinces. Uh, they're not in a very delightful situation, and that's the reason why Peter picks up his pen and he writes them. They're in the context of persecution. They're in the context of suffering. This is an oppressive environment in which these folks are living. And so in order to appreciate the words of 1 Peter, you've got to appreciate the context and the audience that he's speaking to, where he's coming from. These people are not living in a democratic republic like we are. They're living in an oppressive society. And yet, Peter picks up his pen, and he begins to articulate the strength of submission. Interesting. And by the way, you've heard me say this before, context is king. You, you, you really must understand verses 13 through 25 in terms of what has just taken place prior to this. If not, then you're going to come to some crazy conclusions about verses 13 through 25. You're going to come to some crazy conclusions. Uh, you got to understand what Peter is not endorsing in terms of recommending to these folks, but he's raising some questions. And before we sort of walk through this, I mean, I, I'm going to walk through the passage, and at the end of the passage, I'm going to make five critical suggestions to us in terms of how we're to survive and thrive and engage in our culture, uh, particularly that's rife with all kinds of uh, of reaction and division in society, and Christians themselves are divided over the political spectrum. And I want to say this up front here, that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to respect each other, even those who disagree with us. We need to respect them and uh, watch the judgmental attitudes that we have, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the question is, how should Christians respond when they live in hostile, oppressive circumstances? How should we respond? When we live in the context of a world that has beaten the nonsense out of us, where choices have been taken off the table, freedoms have been restricted, how, how do we respond? What should our attitude be toward those who oppress and mistreat us? How should I think about oppressive people? How should I think about tyrannical leaders? How should I think about folks who make laws that restrict my religious freedom that come after me, come after you? How do we respond to that? We have to wrestle with the question, is the ultimate goal favorable treatment and circumstances? Our American brand of Christianity would tend to lend itself in that genre that really the goal, we live in the United States of America, we live in this free system, and the goal is uh, 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 I need to live in a stress-free environment, and, and there always should be favorable treatment. But what, what happens when there's not? Is 
the ultimate goal favorable treatment and circumstances? Or is the ultimate goal Christ-likeness and the advancement of the gospel? Peter votes for that. Peter votes for that. Peter says the ultimate goal in life is not your comfort. The ultimate goal of life is not that you be pain-free. The ultimate goal of life is that not, not everybody, you know, that, that everybody will treat you right. That is not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness and the advance of the gospel. And sometimes persecution and oppression and injustice are tools of God to help us to look more like Christ and to advance the gospel. So it's with that in mind that Peter is framing and speaking to their reality, their reality, their reality. And I would have to say that the response of these Christians in these five Roman provinces in the midst of hellacious circumstances, God used, God used the impact and see an incredible harvest of souls in Rome. I, I, I just want to quote a little bit. I was reading a, reading a piece, uh, uh, an article entitled The Rise of Christianity. And uh, this author was talking particularly about the impact of these Christians who have been persecuted and scattered about through the Roman Empire and what eventually happened. In the midst of oppressive, incredible, and unjust situations and circumstances, the, there was incredible impact. He says, eventually the Roman public became aware of the high moral qualities of the religion by watching the Christians face persecution and death steadfastly. This convinced many that Christians really did possess a source of spiritual comfort and strength, inducing many to join the cult, and that's what it was considered back then. And not just the poor and downtrodden. Already by the reign of Domination, uh, Christians were found at the highest circles of society. So it was the response, the godly response, submissive response of these believers that God used ironically to introduce an incredible harvest of souls throughout the Roman Empire. So Peter picks up his pen and he says, basically, what are we called to do in the midst of hostility? When folks come after us, what are we called to do? Peter says we're called to do two things. Number one, we're called to be model citizens. And get this second one. I know this is going to be an ouchie, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to even put my mouth around it when I consider sort of the, the damnable devastation and pain of slavery. We're called to be model citizens, but number two, we're called to be submissive servants. Now, you have to understand the broader context here. Peter is not endorsing oppressive behavior, and he's not endorsing the slave system, okay? He is not doing that. His focus here in context is telling these believers how to survive in the context of a damnable reality. That's what he's saying to them. He's not endorsing this violent approach to leadership. 
But he's saying, look, I want you to thrive and survive, and this is how you do it. First of all, we're called to be model citizens. That's verses 13 through 17. And again, I would underscore under this one that Peter is not, once again, endorsing evil leaders and injustice. He's not endorsing that at all. His focus is on these folks, these believers who have been scattered about in these five Roman provinces. And listen to what he says. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject. Um, he says, number one, in verses 13 and 14, you need to submit to every human authority. And by the way, the word subject there is a Greek word, upotasso. Uh, not to brag about any knowledge of Greek, but it's very important here because this word is a military term that means to arrange in military fashion under the command of a leader. Under a command of a leader. And it's almost as if Peter is saying, no matter how perverted and distorted human government is, that ultimately it's been used by God to bring order to society. And so if anyone should honor the principle of government and the principle of authority, followers of Christ should honor that. And we're to be submissive to that. We're responsible to obey the law. Look at these verses here. Subject yourselves for the, um, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The apostle Paul will give a further commentary on this in, Ro in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. I don't have time to read that, but Paul, Paul says, look, you render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You render to God what belongs to God. And, and that government is a, is, a, is a ministry that comes from God to bring order to society. Now, again, we know that governments have been perverted. But it gives order and structure. And so Peter's telling these, these exiles, look, you, you, you need to submit to government authority. We are to obey the law as long as it does not conflict with the scriptures. There's a higher law. He's not calling it to blind allegiance because Peter himself would have violated what he, if, if that's the case, and he violated himself what he said over in Acts chapter 4. You remember that? He and John got locked up after the church got started. They were preaching the gospel and this kind of thing and healing people. And so the religious leaders had their own laws, and they came and they, they, they arrested Peter and John and sort of interrogated them and this kind of thing. And then they let them go, but then they warned them and said, don't preach in this name any longer. And Peter says, ah, no can do, buddy. We have to obey God rather than man. So Peter's not contradicting himself here when he says submit to, to, to the government authorities. The, the, the ellipsis or the understanding is as long as those government authorities do not conflict with the laws of God. At the time, government laws and authorities conflict, conflict with the clear statements of this book. There's no discussion. You don't obey them. You flat out don't obey them. They may say it's legal to kill babies, but God says that's committing murder. 
So the laws of God, yes, we, we are cooperative, we submit, as long as they are under the authority of the Word of God. And notice in verse 13, he says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. He's not saying that government becomes your God. No, you do this for the Lord's sake. The Lord's sake. This is the motivation for obeying the law. It's as if Peter says, look, you should not want to have any, 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 anything said about you in any way that would cause others watching your behavior to say, oh, you're supposed to represent Jesus, and how come you got this rebellious spirit? What's with the hostility, man? Again, your behavior needs to reflect who you're related to. You do this for the Lord's sake. And then verse 15, he instructs us that we always do good. No matter what the authority is, look at what he says here. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You, you, you want to have the best argument in terms, of, uh, in terms of, of what you stand for as a believer? Make sure your character eclipses your arguments. Did you hear what I just said? Make sure your character eclipses your arguments. That's what Peter's saying here. Hey, man, don't, don't, don't be talking about how bad the government is. And yet they look at your life and they look at your good works. You ain't doing nothing. All you're doing is sending and posting stuff on Facebook and, and, and criticizing who's in, in, in power and, and, and bellyaching and always, uh, you know, knocking people down and this kind of thing. You know, is there integrity for that? Especially he said, don't give this devil a stick to hit you upside the head with. Let your good works. Let your good works be the foundation of what you say. Always do good. Always do good. Always do good. These people are watching you, as Peter's saying, man. They're looking at you. They're looking at how you respond. They're looking at how you react. What do they see under the hood? Do they see you loving people? Do they see you doing good? Do they see you cooperative? Are you just, just you know, parroting the same negative shouting contest? You know, I got to tell you, I'm just with you out here. You might, I, Karen and I have just taken breaks from cable news. We're just taking a break from this stuff. You know, because I don't care whether it's the left or the right, it's still the same, same show. You know, you got a dude that says something here, and you get four people on the panel, and they end up shouting at one another, and then you've got great insight, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, that's only a tad bit cynical. I mean, that, that's pretty much the case. You just have to push the rewind button, because I, I, I found that stuff was messing with my attitude. Always do good. It says live transparently. That's what verse 16 is about. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Oh, I, man, this is great stuff. He says, we enjoy true freedom when we obey God and live as his servants. The oppressive environment around you does not, does not in any way restrict your freedom. 
In fact, Paul teaches us that restriction is a form of, a restriction is a way in which we can focus our freedom. We're free in Jesus. I, I, I could go off on this, but I got to tell you, I have been in situations where people have been oppressed. I was in South Africa. The first time I went there was in 1979. It was the height of apartheid. And I thought I was going to lose my natural-born mind because I was speaking at these outreaches to Africana businessmen and political leaders in Johannesburg and Pretoria. And in the evenings, I was going to places like Soweto and Attridgeville, where it was nothing more than legalized slavery. And that's not an overstatement. And I was saying, God, this is not fair. And I remember one evening I was in Attridgeville. I was speaking at this large rally there. And one of our, our, one of our staff members there, he, he's... Uh, he's He's Sutu and his background lived in this tiny house, tiny four-room house, and I asked to use the bathroom. And he gave me a flashlight. He was embarrassed. And I felt bad for him, and it just sort of broke me because I've been putting up with this for almost two weeks. I said, God, this is not fair. Let justice roll down. It's not fair for these people to be treated this way. It's not right. And I'll never forget going to this hall. I didn't want to preach that evening. I just, this stuff had just messed with my head. And I get to the hall and there, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of these people in the hall. And they were singing in Sutu. I'll never forget this. They were singing in Sutu, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And it was as if the Lord spoke to me, Crawford, Crawford, these people are not enslaved. You ought to feel more sorry for the Afrikaners and those who are in those positions. In the midst of their oppression, they've discovered a powerful freedom. And this is what Peter's talking about here. Who's in government and who's in power does not determine your freedom. You have a freedom that they long for. In fact, God would use that to change and impact the Roman Empire by this cult. I think there's another implication here. He's saying that we submit as those who are free in Christ and not as those who have a subservient spirit. No, no, outwardly they're treating you like, a, like, like you don't matter. Outwardly they're oppressing you, but you're free in Jesus. You don't have a subservient spirit. You, you, you submit not because you think poorly of yourself. Remember the context here. You see, in other words, he's saying we serve authority, but we're not owned by authority. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? We serve authority, but we're not owned by authority. Where do you get that from? What I just preached on last week. What did Peter say to them? Helping to identify who they are. He says, holiness is tied to your identity. Who are you? You're, you're not your circumstances. You're not how people treat you. That is not the definition of who you are. You're not what they say about you. You're not your environment. You're not who's in leadership. You're not their laws. Who are you? You are a hungry infant. Who are you? You're a living foundation. Who are you? You are royalty. 
Who are you? You're a sojourner. You're not subservient. You submit not because you're hopeless. So when he says, no, you're free. You're free. And he says, we need to respect and honor authority. That's what we need to do. Respect and honor authority. Let me just say a word here. Um, listen to me. This is just crazy, wrong thinking about respect and honor. We have been taught this way. I respect you if you respect me. I'll honor you if you honor me. That's the reason why we're so screwed up. And that's precisely the reason why we have bigger pro big problems with authority. You give respect, even if it is not earned. Now, I would say flip side, we need to act in such, live in such a way that we do earn the respect of people. I'm not saying that at all, but you give it. You respect the person. You respect the position. You honor the person. You honor the position. Be careful of pejorative language about people who are in authority. Be careful of responding in kind the way they talk about other folks. And Peter's warning them, say, hey, careful now, careful, 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 careful. Remember who you represent. Remember who you represent. Don't be the same belly achers as other people around you. Don't absorb their negative mindset and their, and their cynical spirits. When they check you out, when they look at you, this is what they ought to see. And this is what we find here in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. This is what Christians do. What Christians do, we honor everyone. You say, how can I do that? Because, you know, you mean, how can you do that? Well, that's how, what Jesus did to you. Isn't that what grace and mercy is all about? We didn't deserve grace and mercy. In a sense, he honored us, even though we were dishonorable. Give the gift of honor, even to those who are dishonorable. So he says, honor everyone. Why? Because it's a portrait of grace and mercy. That's what he's done for us. Love your fellow Christians. I think he's talking about both support and modeling. Don't y'all be fighting with one another. Don't turn the guns on your enemy. I am so sick and tired of Christians fighting each other. It is disgusting. We shoot our own wounded. Don't pick fights with one another. You got to survive, Jack. You need your brother. You need your sister. You need to close ranks. Don't write people off just because they don't agree with you politically. They've come underneath the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They may not see things the same way that you see them. I got disgusted in this last election cycle. 
And the thing that hurt my heart worse than anything else was how fellow believers were coming after those who saw things differently. My goodness, what have we come to? Your political party is not the 67th book of the Bible. We need to love one another, care for one another, honor civil authority, fear God is what he says. Now, I started not to go here, but I need to go here. Do you know who was the emperor when Peter wrote this? Do you have any idea? Just so that you know that he's not, you know, kind of like in Sugarland someplace. You know who the emperor was? The emperor was Nero. Do you know anything about Nero? Nero was not a good guy. Nero was a nasty dude. In fact, I'm going to leave out something here because we got some young folks in here, so I'm not going to tell you all that Nero was up into. Nero was a massive pervert in the worst order. And I'll just leave it at that. Not only that, Nero started the fire there in Rome and blamed it on Christians. Nero used to take believers, Christians, he would get wild animals, right? Take the skin off of wild animals and put these Christians in there, sew them up, and drop them in the midst of wild dogs. His favorite thing that he would do with the Christians would be that he would have them get, capture these Christians, bring them in, put them in these long shirt-like things that had been dipped a number of times in wax, put them on these believers, and then tie them to posts in his gardens and light them. The man was so diabolical that he killed his own mother. His perversion and, and evil caught up with him, and he committed suicide. So, when Peter says, <laughs> honor the emperor, It don't get any worse than that. He didn't say endorse his behavior. You need to know how to survive. So first he says, look, you're living in a hostile environment. And that's an understatement. They're coming after you. They want you dead. Remember, it's more important for you to represent Jesus than for you to endorse the government. So what do you do? You're a model citizen. Then he turns his attention to those who are slaves, believers that he's writing to. He says, you're not only a model citizen, but number two, you, you need to, you, you're called to be submissive servants. This ouches me here because I tell you, when I consider... Now, this is real in my life. When I consider the stories that I knew firsthand from passed down from my great-grandfather, Peter, who was a slave, all through oral tradition in our family, and I, and I knew what my uncles and all had gone through, through Jim Crow and the segregation and all of the stuff that, that, that personally as a family, 
and, and every African-American in here is kind of doing this right now. We know those stories. We know them. We know them. We have felt the pain of all of those things. And so when you read texts like this, we also know that during Jim Crow and slavery, this text was hijacked and taken out of his context to endorse a slave system. And they, they missed the whole context. If Peter's not endorsing a slave system at all, he's telling slaves how to survive within that context. How to survive. He's not endorsing slavery or injustice. And by the way, I need to say this, that slavery in the Roman Empire was not race-based. It's different from the slavery that we've experienced in this country. So for those folks to even to apply it to here, it's, it's, it's like applying, uh, you know, pineapples to apples. I mean, it, it's just, it, you, you, you can't do it. Slavery back then was more, it was driven by indentured servitude. Now, originally, slavery back in the 1700s was driven by indentured servitude here in the United States, but, but it was driven by indentured servitude. In fact, the slaves throughout the Roman Empire primarily were taken from conquered lands that they bought back. And slavery there was not necessarily an economic deal. It wasn't just poor people who were slaves. You had professionals who were slaves in the Roman Empire. It had nothing to do with your rank in society. It, it just, it, the fact that you were a conquered person. And so you, you got to be careful of saying that it doesn't necessarily apply in terms of what our slave system was about. And in fact, uh, there, because it was indentured servitude, there was, and I hate to put it this way, but there was sort of a humane way of getting out of it. They could buy their own freedom, which was not uncommon. It's a pathway to freedom there. It wasn't necessarily so here. And by the way, the word slave that he uses here in verse 13, servants, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Um, the word servant here is, is, is not the common word for slave, doulos or douloi. That's the common word. This is a very specific word for slave. It's the Greek word uh, oiketai. It, we, it comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house. He's talking about, he's talking about household or domestic slaves. And these domestic slaves in the pecking order, and it's just the opposite of what slavery was here. Field slaves here in the United States, in our system, they were treated the most harshly. If you were a field slave, that's where you got whipped and beat in line and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, you were treated harshly. Usually, if you are, um, let me say it in a sanitized way, if you were a house Negro, uh, you were treated, relatively speaking, it was still slavery, but you were treated more humanely. It was just the other way around here. And so he's writing these folks who are household slaves. Many of them are getting beaten. Peter says, what are you going to do? Percy says, I don't want you to be hurt unnecessarily. So, upotasso, be subject to your masters. Be subject to them. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Watch your attitude. 
you're in this situation. I want you to thrive and survive. Careful. Be subject to them. Again, you don't have to have a subservient spirit. Your master thinks he owns you, but he doesn't own you. God owns you. But willingly submit. He says in verse 15, I'm sorry, in verse, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, circle that, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, you, th th these are tender words here. Listen, listen to what he's saying here. Wake up. Listen to what he's saying here. He, he's saying you need to suffer with anticipation and realize that even in your suffering, you're being sustained by God. In other words, the motivation for bearing up under suffering and oppression is the conscious awareness of God's presence. He's not left you because they own you. Some time ago, I was in Colorado Springs, and uh, uh, um, that's a beautiful city, the mountains surrounding the city, but it was cloudy, and the clouds had, had rolled in, and Colorado Springs sits down just a little bit, and the clouds had hovered over, and you could not see the mountains, although they were just, just a few miles this way. You couldn't see them. Then the next morning, I woke up, and there was sunshine, and boy, there were the mountains. Did the mountains just show up? No, they were there all the time. And so what Peter's saying there, no, 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 I know you're in a cloudy situation right now. I know you're in a terrible situation right now. But you need to be consciously aware that God is behind the scenes, moving the scenes. He's there with you. And he's going to sustain you. And then he says, ultimately, draw strength from, from Christ, the example. But let me just say a word here. Um... Here in the United States of America, and this is, this is you know, I'm, I'm dating myself. Those of us who grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, I was 18 years old in 1968, so my formative years was front row center with the Civil Rights Movement and all the stuff that took place, the demonstrations, the dogs, and all of that stuff that took place. There were many Christians back then. I, I went to a Bible college, and I, some of my professors even said back then, Boy, you know, I don't know about all these demonstrations. You have to obey the laws of the land. And they quoted from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And uh, I didn't buy that back then. I didn't have the framework, and I don't buy it right now. Let me explain this to you. One of the things you've got to remember, we all have to remember, is, you know, God has blessed this country in an incredible way. And the framers of our Constitution, I'm thoroughly convinced, did not realize the powerful hand of God on them. Some of them did, but a lot of them were deists who, who framed our Constitution. They did not realize that God was ordering something that was unbelievable in this country. We are unique in the world. The United States of America is what we call a democratic republic. Bear with me here. I'm going someplace with this. It is government by the people and for the people. The framers of the Constitution, 
The Constitution is the supreme document, the supreme law in this democratic republic. What does that mean? Inherent in the Constitution, and I, I don't believe that many of them even, even thought about this, and please forgive me, I don't mean this to sound biased, but most all of them that, that signed that document that helped frame that owned slaves. It's a historic fact. And the president was right when he said Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and George Washington owned them. He's right. And let me just be fair. Jonathan Edwards owned, owned a couple of slaves. The father of modern evangelicalism. So, so when they penned these words, I don't think in their minds they, they were thinking about the dismantling of the slave system, but God was using them to write the very laws that would be used by him to dismantle the system. So when you, when you, 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 you know, you know, I, when you, you talk about these United States of America where God, God has blessed us in ways that we're not aware. Inherent in the Constitution itself is freedom of speech and peaceful dissent. We have that right. So when Rosa Parks, back in the 50s, there in Montgomery, Alabama, when she refused to go to the back of the bus, she did break the laws of Alabama. But she was in compliance with, with the ultimate laws of the United States of America. So in that sense, she was submissive to those laws. And when there were demonstrations and folks sitting at lunch counters and refusing to, they, did they break the law? Yes, they broke the laws of Georgia. Yes, they broke the laws of Mississippi. Yes, they broke the laws of Virginia. Yes, they broke the laws of Tennessee, but they kept the laws of the land. And in that regard, this democratic republic has given us permission and encouraged peaceful dissent. So you cannot apply this text of Scripture to say uh, that somehow or another, keep your mouth shut if you're being mistreated. Not necessarily so. Depends on the context. What Peter was writing, folks, they weren't in a democratic republic. And he was helping them to survive. Ultimately, he says, this is the portrait of Jesus. In that last paragraph, he says, let me show you. You're not the only one who's had to submit. And let me just tell you, Submission does not mean that you're powerless. Submission may mean that you are powerful. Jesus' submission in his death. In fact, he said in John 10, I'm going to warn you, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. So Jesus was not passive in his death. He was willfully obedient in his death. There's a difference. And he surrendered. And even when they were saying, well, we're going to take your life from you, this kind of thing, he said, no, 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 time out, time out, time out. I could call down 10,000 angels if I wanted to right now. This would be over. But Peter's saying that we need to make sure that we're innocent, verse 22, just as Jesus was innocent. We need to draw our strength from God just like Jesus drew his strength from God. And we are to fulfill his assignment for us. 
But he's saying in so many words, just as Jesus' suffering was redemptive, so is ours. Now let me wrap this up by just, just giving five suggestions to us. Five suggestions. And I know that there's a lot of controversy out here about the flag stuff and, and all of this. I frankly, I did, a, I did an interview, a national interview on Monday afternoon on Chris Savory Live as a syndicated deal with the Moody Network in which for the whole hour I just sort of talked about what is a, a Christian response to the NFL players and this kind of thing. And um, just so that you know, I, I, I think we need to be careful when we disrespect the flag, we be careful because, ironically, those folks who laid their lives down gave us the freedom to protest. So we need to be careful how we go about that. And yet at the same time, I think we need to stop talking at each other and past each other and start listening to one another and understand the pain that's on both sides. And that's what believers do. And so you got to be careful that you don't borrow somebody else's framework and opinions about this and just look people in the eye. Have more cups of coffee with people who are different than you. Uh, don't be so quick to go on Facebook and spout off things. Uh, sit down and listen. Listen to their heart. Listen to their pain. Not that it will move us from our positions, but it might temper us in terms of our attitudes. Now, having said that, let me give you five suggestions here. Number one, we need to pray for our leaders. Pray for them. Pray for those that you disagree with passionately politically. Pray for our leaders. Secondly, we need to be civil in our disagreements. I tell you what pains me most about our country. These last uh, few years, what pains me most about our country is that we've lost civility. We've lost it. And the inability to engage in conversation and to listen to one another and be civil and to think beyond yourself and come to a common ground, it's not compromise. But we need to be civil in our disagreements. We should not be hostile, combative, and adversarial in our attitude and in our tone. And I, I just need to say this. You see, I, I need, this is just Crawford, do whatever y'all want to do. But this is one of the reasons why I do not carry on dialogues in social media. I do not. I don't carry on dialogues in social media. You can do whatever you choose to do. But I think we need to be civil in our tone. I think we need to ratchet down the combative language. Uh, there's room for disagreements. Don't get me wrong. Thirdly, I think we need to spend more time doing good and less time complaining. If some of us would share the gospel as much as we do complain about the government, we'd see a lot of people come to know Christ. If more of us would do good to our neighbors rather than complain about what's taking place on TV, so I think we need to spend a lot more time doing good. And that's what Paul was, uh, Peter was telling these exiles. And number four, let's pour ourselves into sharing the gospel and discipling others. Sometimes these issues that we have concerns about, and I've got my list of concerns, takes us away from the core issue. The core issue is proclaiming Christ. The core issue is sharing the gospel with free people. The core issue is pouring our hearts and lives into their lives and seeing that they, they become multiplying disciples. 
And the last one, which might sound like uh, it's not related, but I do think it's related. Speak up for those who don't have a voice. If you're going to waste and expend some political capital, if you're going to expend some energy on issues, uh, make sure the energy is in line with what God says in his word about, about our engagement. He says an awful lot about picking up the rights of those who have been mistreated and the poor and the disenfranchised. Let's do that. Let's do those things. More than anything else, we don't want anything to be a stumbling block to people coming to our Savior. God is more concerned with his glory than he is about our position and our power. Amen? Let's stand together, please. You know, I love you, fellowship, and I just, uh, I feel the love from you all. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of a body like this where diversity is becoming an ever-increasing reality, and in which, in many ways, we are listening to one another. But I got to tell you, I don't, see, I don't see a lot of bright hope out there in our culture. Um, I, see, I see us moving to more polar opposites. And I just want to encourage us, don't get caught up in that swamp. Don't get caught up in that quicksand. We need, to, we need to press into what we're doing right now. We're on the right track. We're on the right track. And we need to keep talking with one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, and being that model in the midst of confusion that the world needs. We can't reflect what's going on in society. And I, I caught myself a few months ago going down that pike because I got a lot of opinions, surprisingly. Uh, but we, we can't afford to do that. We can't give up our prophetic integrity. We cannot give up our gospel witness. We can't do that. We can't do that. We've got to be what the culture's not. We've got to represent what they long to be, although they fight against. So let's keep pressing into one another. Any spiritual needs at all, our elders and Stephen ministers and staff will be up front. We'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you, O oh God, for your goodness. And thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you that you don't skirt the issues. We feel like skirting them sometimes. But thank you for these truths. And may we live as model citizens. Citizens of heaven, obeying the laws. And yes, may we be submissive servants. And there's those times for us to suffer under oppressive situations that we can't do anything about. May we represent you and represent you well. Dismiss us from this place, but may we walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.